So I have a question for you. What does Mick Jagger, Angelina Jolly, John Eels and Lady Gaga have in common? Hmm. The thing I know for certain that these people have in common is they all studied economics at university. Who would have thought? I mean, outwardly, they look very different. But certainly the economics that we're going to look at today is not the economics that Lady Gaga studied. The economics that we're going to look at today is a Christian worldview of economics. Because, you see, God has a powerful truth to tell us about any topic that we choose to look at, including economics. It can be a very sensitive topic, economics, because we're talking about money. But we're not just talking about money. We're talking about any resource that God has decided that he would like to give us to be stewards of. So what is it? So when we're talking about economics today, I just want you to think of two words. We want to look at the idea of wants and resources. It's as simple as that. What is God's view when it comes to wants and resources? That is the question we really want to answer today. You see, there's a secular worldview of economics and there's a Christian worldview of economics and they're poles apart. And they ask very different questions. You see, the world says, what does man own? That's an important question that the world asks. Jesus asks us a very different question. But the world actually says, what does man own? Materialism runs rife. And as Madonna once sang, which is a truth I agree with her, we live in a material world. But, you know, then she says, and I'm a material girl. But we don't have to be material girls and boys here because we have a choice, because Jesus gives us the choice by the work he did on the cross. We are free from the world's view and the world's hold on materialism as the only view to economics. We can have a totally different view. We can have the view of the Bible. But do we know what the Bible says about economics? You see, materialism, which is really a yearning to consume stuff and accumulate more stuff, is what the world is saying is the right way to view economics. Look at your wants and resources. The answer is to get stuff. But, you know, it won't take you very long if you just jump on Google and look for studies on materialism to see if materialism is a good idea. Well, the world will tell you the more stuff you accumulate, the more stuff that you use, the happier you'll be. Study after study has shown that's not true. In fact, when they study people who accumulate lots of stuff, they're actually the unhappiest people. Their happiness scores are low. And the world says happiness is what you need. Happiness is the goal. But that's not true for materialism. Life satisfaction scores are low for people that accumulate stuff. The only thing that's high for people that accumulate lots of stuff are psychiatric disorders like depression, because they're depressed, they haven't got as much stuff as the person next door, or as much stuff as they want because the television tells them how much stuff they need. And what's really interesting is the two disorders that were highest on people that 
are big on getting stuff is depression because they don't have what they want because it's unceasing. But you know the other thing that really interests me? The other top diagnosis is paranoia. Don't you think that's interesting? That intrigues me. If our view of economics is I've got to have lots of stuff, imagine if your neighbour drives in with a brand new car when you get home. (gasps) Maybe my car's not good enough. Maybe I need to get another car. What does that say about me? Is he trying to buy a car to make me want more? Where did he get that money from? I wonder if he got that from me. Did he steal my money? That interests me. You see, this idea of materialism generates all sorts of problems. It not only robs us of happiness and well-being, it generates all sorts of problems. So if we want to avoid being enmeshed in the world's view of economics, then in addition to having a lifestyle of spiritual growth, we need to make sure that we cultivate a godly view of economics, of resources and of our wants. So if the world's asking, what does man own? Jesus asks, what does man do with what I've given him? So it's not what we own. Jesus isn't interested in our asset register or being impressed with what we have. He gave it to us anyway. It's his. But his question says, what are you doing with what I've given you? And yes, he gives us different stuff and he gives us different abilities and he gives us different strengths and different weaknesses. But the question for each of us, no matter what we have or don't have, is what are you doing with what he's actually already given you? Because he's given all of us plenty. So what is a biblical view of economics? What's a biblical view of wants and resources? I really like what Martha Luther King said about our conversion. He said, we have to be converted in terms of our heart. But we also need a conversion of our mind, the way we're thinking. But he says, you know the slowest thing to get converted? The slowest thing to get converted is our wallet. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? And what's the wallet represent? Everything we have, everything we actually have been given. Charles Spurgeon says the same thing. He says, some Christians, in fact, he says with a lot of Christians, the last part of their nature that ever gets sanctified is their pockets. So let's not be slow to sanctify what God gives us. Let's not be slow or scared to talk about what he gives us, to talk about money, to talk about resources, to talk about wants. So here's some well-known scriptures which may come to mind when you think about what's God's view when it comes to money and stuff and resources. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions or maybe for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil or maybe for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Great scriptures, beautiful scriptures to help us understand what's God's view of economics. But there's another scripture which God has stirred up in me for about two weeks now when it comes to the topic of economics. I want us to take a very good look at a different scripture today. This will be our key scripture for today in terms of God's view of economics. God says to us today in Psalm 23.1, and you'll know this one, 
a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. To me, if there's one scripture that sums up God's view, a Christian worldview of economics, it's this one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So this is the core scripture we're going to look at today. We want to say to God, how is it that this scripture tells us how to live a life your way when it comes to resources and wants? So let's look at the idea of being a shepherd. You see, this scripture looks at both of those ideas of economics because a shepherd provides for our resources. And this scripture also says something about wants. So this scripture really is very core when it looks at economics. So what's a shepherd do? If we're asking God to be our shepherd, and note that David says to us, the Lord is my shepherd, which tells us we have a choice. God doesn't have to be your shepherd. There's lots of competing shepherds out there that are going to be very enticing. And if there's one really major warning God is stirring up in me to share with you today, it's that we need to choose him as a shepherd. Because if we don't choose him as a shepherd... There's two other major choices. One is that we'll choose other people to shepherd us and we'll follow like dumb sheep other people. Or two, and probably even worse, is we'll make ourselves the shepherd. We'll follow our own desires, our own wants, which is the opposite of shall not want. So think carefully about who's your shepherd. Think carefully. Every time you make a decision, you have an opportunity to choose Jesus as your shepherd, the one that provides your resources so that you don't have to be left wanting. So a shepherd. What does a shepherd do? It's an interesting analogy that God has given us in the Bible. He said, or David has said to us, I've chosen... My Lord, the Lord, to be my shepherd. What does that mean? What would a shepherd do? What are the things that a shepherd would be doing for David? Well, there's three things. The first one, the Greek word that's used here means to tend or pasture. It's the idea of ruling or teaching. This is what a shepherd does. This is what Jesus does for David as his shepherd. And this is what we need to be asking Jesus to do for us. Because it's such a beautiful blessing by the grace of God that each one of us is saved. So Jesus is our saviour. If we choose to believe, if we choose to repent, if we choose to follow him, he is our saviour. But you know that other part to that little title? We often sing, he's my Lord and saviour. It's easy to take him as our saviour because that's a beautiful work that he's done. But is he our Lord? Is he teaching us every day? Is he ruling in our life? Because if we want Jesus to be our shepherd, that's the role he needs to place. That's what he needs to be doing, ruling our thinking, ruling our heart and ruling our wallet. What else does a shepherd do? A shepherd feeds his sheep. They graze. Think about what sheep do all day. They wander around eating all day. They graze. And the shepherd stays with the sheep. So we don't really have shepherds anymore. But what used to happen is the shepherd would stay with the, with the sheep pretty much all day long. 
helping them choose what to graze on and not to gr- what not to graze on. What's good for them? What's not good for them? These are poisonous weeds. Don't eat here. I'll lead you away this way. You need to drink some water now. I'll take you down to a stream or a brook. The shepherd is constantly directing his sheep what to feed on in terms of their stomachs. But what are they feeding on in terms of their eyes? What are they looking at? What is Jesus asking you to feed on in terms of what you're looking at, what you're reading, what you're digesting, what you're watching on TV, what you're seeing on the internet? What are we grazing on? Are we asking Jesus, what do I need to graze on today, Lord? Or are we just grazing on what everyone else is grazing on? Or are we just grazing on what we feel would be nice for us? Who's shepherd when it comes to what we're grazing on? And thirdly, this Greek word shepherd, it means to associate with, to be a special friend of. And this one is the one that I guess we can sometimes easily forget because Jesus is not like a friend who sits in front of us and holds our hand and cries with us and goes to the movies with us and writes us emails. You see, Jesus is a much more special friend than that because he will always be loyal to you. He will never, ever leave you. Jesus will be the most ideal friend you could ever imagine if you choose him to be your shepherd. But he won't be if we choose other people to be our best friend or if we decide we're just interested in listening to our own thoughts and our own opinions if we're our best friend. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. But he's only the good shepherd if we choose him to be our shepherd. So let's have a look at an ideal shepherd. In our choice of shepherd, what would we be looking for if we were looking for an ideal shepherd? Who would be the perfect shepherd? What would they do for us? What would that look like? Let's think about it in terms of a shepherd and his sheep because that's the analogy God gives us. He calls himself a good shepherd. What does a good shepherd or an ideal shepherd do? Well, a shepherd, if he's with his sheep, he's constantly watching out for them because if there's one thing that we know about sheep is that wolves like sheep. They like them for their meat. So a good shepherd watches out for enemies And you know, if we're making a decision about who to follow, maybe we need to consider what Jesus says. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. So if we choose Jesus to be our shepherd, no one will snatch you out of his hand, ever. And I think that this is um, something that we forget in day-to-day life. It's like... I'm so busy, there's so much going on. Does Jesus actually know the turmoil I'm going through? Does he understand the problems I'm having? Really, there's, I feel like there's a lot happening for me. I feel like there's problems, I'm getting attacked. Really, is Jesus looking out for me at the moment? I want to look at a very, very simple example that shows that there's no time that Jesus does not watch out for us. So on Friday night, This is just everyday stuff. My everyday life stuff is probably very similar to your very everyday life stuff. So on a Friday afternoon, 
Um, Claudia plays basketball and then there's youth group at 7 o'clock. So for us, it's one of those logistical things where you get her to basketball, she's finished playing basketball, she's all sweaty and disgusting and somehow needs to get changed into something to get to youth. We don't have time to go home to get changed, so we've now got a system happening where she gets changed in the back seat of the car. Easy. Got that sorted. The other thing we need to do is to get her fed before we get to youth. So sometimes I make sandwiches, sometimes I just give her some fruit, but this time we decided we saw a subway on the way to the shed last time, so we thought we'll try subway this time, then I don't have to prepare all the food. So we're going along Old Cleveland Road, just about to get on the gateway. And as you're going along Old Cleveland Road, there's a little side street where you need to turn left. Then as you turn left, there's a little shopping centre and a car park, if you turn left again, or there's a whole heap of different takeaway places, KFC, Hell's Pizza, can you believe, um, Subway and something else. So as I was at the traffic lights to turn left into the side street, I noticed that KFC had this huge line-up through the takeaway drive through all the way around until it came all the way out to where you actually go into the car park. And I looked at that and I thought, I'm never going to get in because Subway's further on, but there's so many people at KFC, there's no way I'm going to get in. So this idea came, just turn left and go and park with the shops and then walk across the road. So I turned left into the side street and of course I've got two backseat drivers telling me what I should do. And my son says to me, Mum, just go next to where the cars are and just go past all those cars and then beyond onto Subway. So he's talking about me going past all those cars and going in where the cars come out. And I said, no, James, I'm not going there because that's where the cars come out. But a whole heap of other people were doing that. So at this point, you see, it's a test. Who's my shepherd? Is it everybody else? Am I going to listen to what everyone else says and what everyone else does and go in the exit lane? Or do I listen to God who's already told me Go in and park with the other shops. So I just said, no, that's the exit. I'm not going that way. I'm going to go and park at the shops. So that's cool. Great. It's nice when you make a good choice, isn't it? So go and park in the shops. We, we go across the side street, which hasn't got much traffic happening. There's still a lineup from KFC. Some guy's probably ordering chips or changing his mind or getting nuggets or whatever he's doing, but there's a huge lineup. It's not moving. Go down to Subway, make all those decisions we make, what sort of bread, what sort of lettuce, whatever. Come out of Subway, come back out. Now, when we get back out and we get to the side street, there's now a huge lineup of cars, not only just next to KFC, but now all the way down the side street and into Old Cleveland Road. It's stable. There's so many. They're just all lined up just sitting there. So remember we've just jaywalked across the street? across the side street to get over. So, of course, James and Claudia are thinking, we'll just jaywalk to get back. And it looks pretty safe because all the cars are just sitting there lined up. No one's moving. But I get this funny feeling. And I get this idea that comes into my mind. Go down to the street lights, walk down to the main road, all the way down there to Old Cleveland Road and cross over at the lights. And I'm thinking, oh, you've got to be kidding. I don't really want to go all the way down there. We're going to be running late. I don't really feel like it. Hmm, 
I'm my own shepherd, aren't I? I think I should just jaywalk. It was safe to come over. Surely it'll be safe to go back. Thank you for the grace of God because he repeated it to me. So I said to the kids, we're going down to the lights to cross. Grumble, grumble, grumble. We're going down to the lights to cross. So we go all the way down to Old Cleveland Road. We're standing there at the lights. All the cars are still sitting there. It's like, Mum, this is over the top. They didn't say anything. They just, I could see it in their faces. This is over the top. Can't believe we're walking all the way down. The cars are just standing there. At that point, I hear this honking on the horn, blasting a horn, revved up motors, you know, the um, twin exhausts that make all the noise, revved up red hot Commodore, come tearing round the corner, bypasses all the cars on the side street, does a huge big Yui, rips through, goes through the exit and climbs in beyond all the other cars. It was the most dangerous thing I've seen in years. My little heart fluttered, but it left. But you know where he crossed the traffic to get in, to push in, to get into the KFC line? Right where we had jaywalked. And I thought to myself, oh, this is a great lesson for my kids. Now, kids, do you remember back then when I was... See, if we hadn't done that and God knows that, see, you've got to listen to God, you've got to listen to God, see, this is for you. And I got back and I said, thank you, Jesus, for giving me this little lesson for my children. They need to know about following you. And then, of course, God says, was that a lesson for them or was that a lesson for you, Liz? Because, you see, the temptation was there. The temptation was there to follow everyone else and go through the exit. And the temptation was there to follow myself as the shepherd and jaywalk back because I didn't want to give up my time and walk down to the crossing. So yes, I followed Jesus that time. Yes, he was my shepherd in that instance. But he was warning me. He said, you don't always follow my voice. I am not always your shepherd in every decision you make. Sometimes you follow other people and sometimes you think you're the shepherd and you ignore me. So you see, every single choice we make, even where we cross the street, is an opportunity for us to choose him as our shepherd because almost every decision you make Other people will be making a different decision, which is a worldly choice. And there will be a temptation for you to ignore him as being your shepherd and to be your own shepherd. So it's a fierce warning today. If we don't want to want stuff, if we don't want to get caught up into a materialistic world and become materialistic girls and boys... Our Lord, the Lord, has to be our shepherd and then we will not want. But if others are our shepherd or we choose to be our own shepherd, we'll be left wanting. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay, back to an ideal shepherd. So we want a shepherd who watches out. An ideal shepherd will watch out for his sheep continuously, even in the mundane, everyday stuff. I thought that was just a mundane afternoon where we're just doing our stuff, going to basketball, going to Subway. There's nothing exciting about my Friday afternoon. I don't know about your Friday afternoons, but 
he's watching out for us, even during those mundane kind of life events. He doesn't ever cease to watch out for us. He will make sure that we're not snatched out of his hand. What else does an ideal shepherd do? Whoops. An ideal shepherd defends the sheep from attackers. Jesus said, I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Which says to me, every day he's defending us till the very last day. He'll never give up till the very last day. And on that very last day, he'll be there to defend us as well. Sounds like a good idea for an ideal shepherd. Sounds like a good choice to me for an ideal shepherd. What else does an ideal shepherd do with his sheep? He heals the wounded and sick sheep. What does Jesus say? Remember when the centurion asked for help? Jesus said, I will go and heal him. And he says the same to us too. I will go and heal him or her. He is there to heal his wounded sheep. He's there to heal us no matter how we're wounded. An ideal shepherd finds and saves the lost or trapped sheep. Does Jesus do that? Jeremiah 31.10 says, He who scattered Israel will gather them and keep them as a shepherd does his flock. So if Natalie's dad was to go wandering, Jesus says, I will go and gather. I won't forget. But we have to listen to that voice because he says, as we'll come to, My sheep hear my voice. I mean, we hear his voice when he says, go down to the traffic lights and and cross over at the traffic lights, not here. Because we are his sheep. We do hear his voice. He is talking to us. But are we prepared to say at that point in time, yes, Jesus, you're my shepherd, not me and not others. An ideal shepherd loves you. These shepherds loved these sheep. They spent hours and hours protecting them, watching them, loving them. They actually loved these sheep. It seems crazy now. And Jesus loves us. As the good shepherd, he gives his life for the sheep. And an ideal sheep shares their lives. So the shepherd is prepared to share his life with us. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. This is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day interaction he has with us. He wants to share his life with us. Do we want to share our life with him? So we have a fantastic ideal shepherd to choose. The, The New Testament tells us that he is the ideal shepherd. He's the good shepherd, but he's not just the good shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. He's the great shepherd. There's no better shepherd than Jesus. He's the best choice you will ever make for a shepherd. He's the only one that qualifies. So we need to choose carefully who our shepherd is. He's the ideal, he's the true, he's the great, he's the chief shepherd. And any other shepherd is false. Other people will be a false shepherd. And we certainly will find a false shepherd if we're just going to follow our own desires or lusts. So Psalm 23.1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, and it then says, I shall not want. What does that mean? The word want means to lack, to be without, to decrease, 
to be lacking, to have a need. But if the Lord is my shepherd, I'm not going to experience those things. See, the inference is in this verse that if the Lord's not my shepherd then, then I'm going to start wanting what everybody else has. I'm going to start looking out and seeing what other people have got that I don't have. Maybe they've got more money. Maybe they've got more knowledge. You see, if we're not listening and interacting to Jesus as our shepherd every single day, the temptation will be to look elsewhere, to start wanting and looking for our needs to be met elsewhere. I got an email from my daughter this week asking if she could participate in the 40-hour famine. You know the thing that the World Vision Organisation does? So every year they do this, whereby for 40 hours you have to give up something. So Claudia's decided that she's going to do the 40-hour famine this year and she's decided she's going to give up furniture for 40 hours. Now this is an interesting choice because when I said to her, why are you doing this to raise money for the kids in Ethiopia, Mum? Great, that sounds fantastic. And, and what are you going to learn from this? Oh, it's going to be fun. That's what you're going to learn from this. Okay, tell me about that, Claudia. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to grab my mattress and I'm going to put it on the ground and that's going to be fun. And then I said, but isn't mattress furniture, Claudia? Oh, I guess I'll have to put my sleeping bag on the floor. Uh Uh-huh. And then, Claudia, when you get up in the morning and you get the cereal bowl and you go to pour your cereal into your bowl, don't think about putting that bowl on the bench in the kitchen because that's furniture. Oh, you mean I've got to put my bowl on the floor? Uh-huh. And you can eat it on the floor too. Ah, she says. Then we started talking about the other times when she uses furniture during the day and how Jesus provides us every time we use a piece of furniture during the day. Amazing to think that Jesus provides for us but we forget how much he provides for us. I like this idea of the 40-hour famine. So when we were talking about it, we went and had a look at the website and I had a little look at what other choices there are in terms of what you could give up. And I was really interested in what they actually listed as things that people, they describe having an appetite for things that people obviously struggle to give up, things that people want. It says on their website, so you want to do the 40-hour famine. You're prepared to spend 40 hours without something you love, just so you can understand a bit better what it's like for kids who have no choice but to go without. The question is, what are you giving up? Because food isn't the only thing you have an appetite for. That's what got my attention. It was like, what is it that we have an appetite for? So if Jesus is not our shepherd, we know that we're going to want. What is it that we want? What do we have an appetite for? Let's have a look. It says you could give up certain things. You could give up food. You could give up furniture. And I think every day do we stop and recognise that Jesus, our shepherd, is providing most people in this country food and furniture. Do we recognise that or do we take that for granted? 
And do we keep our head on all the things that we really want? Or do we recognise our shepherd is providing for our needs? I wonder what would happen in our thinking if we stopped and recognised all the things that our shepherd is providing us every day that we forget. Would that change what we wanted if we recognised what he already has given us? What else did they say you could give up? He said, the website says you could give up the internet. Now that's an interesting one. Because remember the three roles of a shepherd are to teach or rule or both. He's there to rule us. He's there to teach us. He's also there to feed us in terms of he's interested and he wants us to listen to him in terms of what are good choices to feed on and graze on. I want you to just stop for a moment and just think about the past week with the internet. Because the internet is part of all our lives. It's there. So remember, Jesus doesn't ask the question, what have you got? He's asking the question, how do you use what you've got? So think about how you've been grazing this week with the internet. Because there's some helpful things on the internet. There's some useful things on the internet. There's some places Jesus wants us to go on the internet and there's some places he doesn't want us to go on the internet. There's a certain amount of time he'd like us to graze perhaps in the internet and there's a limit to the amount of time he wants us to graze on the internet. So when we sit and make choices, when we're sitting in front of the computer, think back this week, who was your shepherd? Was Jesus actually the one saying, this is enough, you need to turn it off? Or were there other people who were your shepherd this week saying, come and jump onto Facebook for three or four hours every night. You don't need to do your homework. Ah, do that later. Hey, it's all gone down on Facebook this week. Or maybe maybe you were the, the shepherd's voice that you were following when it came to sitting down and using the internet. Oh, this is fun. I'll just download one more movie. Oh, nice. I like being able to sit up and avoid doing all those things I know I should. Every single choice we make is an opportunity to choose him as our shepherd because the more we choose others as our shepherd or ourselves as our shepherd, we're going to keep wanting. What else could you give up for 40 hours? Mobile phone. Now that's an interesting one. What are we saying on the mobile phone? When we're talking to people, are we using words that our shepherd wants us to use? Or are we saying things to whoever's on the other end of the phone because we want to please the person that's on the other end of the phone? Or are we just wanting to please ourselves by giving someone an earful and letting them know where they're wrong? We have an opportunity every time we use a mobile phone to say, Jesus, you're my shepherd. It's how I use the mobile phone you're most interested in. Not whether or not I've got the flashiest mobile phone. He's not interested in what we've got. He's interested in how we're using it, what we're doing with our mobile phone, what we're saying on the mobile phone. What else could you give up? What else is obviously important to us? Video games, transport, shopping. They can all be opportunities to choose Jesus as our shepherd or to choose others as our shepherd 
or to choose ourself. We need to be very careful about determining what choices we make in terms of what we really need. Because if we don't choose Jesus as our shepherd, we will be wanting. And is that a problem? Well, James says it is. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight you do not have because you do not ask God. There is a really big problem with wanting, not only for ourselves, but for us as a family. It causes this stuff. If we're not following Jesus as our shepherd, we're wanting. And the wanting means we're starting to look to other people to see what they've got. We're listening to our lusts and desires to satisfy a want which may not be in line with what Jesus says is good for us. And the end result of this wanting is fighting and quarrelling and battling and warring. He also makes an interesting point. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. We don't ask Jesus what we need. We don't ask Jesus whether or not that's a good thing for us to be asking for before we even ask it. Albert Einstein once said, I want to know all God's thoughts. The rest are just details. I kind of like that. So God, what's your thought about getting a new mobile phone? Is that a good way for me to spend my money or do you want me to spend that on something else? God, what are your thoughts about sitting here and maybe spending a bit of time on Facebook? Because I know you want me to be connected to my Christian friends so that must mean at least six hours of Facebook tonight because really that's much more important than doing the homework. Oh, and by the way, is it really important for me to have 264 friends on Facebook because that must mean that I'm really popular and I really want to be really popular. Oh, have I just slipped into me being the shepherd? See how easy it is? We've got to be asking God not only for things or stuff or um, for help, but we've got to be asking him first, is this a good idea? Is this what I need? You're my shepherd. You know me. You watch out for me. Is this your will, Lord? He knows us. If we don't go to him, we'll end up wanting. So I want to talk to you about three secrets of not wanting today. I want to talk about we need to seek our needs from our shepherd. That's the first secret. So Psalm 23.1 says... The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Where's the secret? The secret is that we need to go to him for our needs. Jesus declares, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and who believes in me will never go thirsty. He says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will never go hungry or thirsty if you come to me for your righteousness. If you come to me for the right choices. I will give you my righteousness so that you can stand before God and not be judged. He said, I will provide you with everything you need. 
And this bread that he gives us, he gives this bread to us as a group. He baptizes us into a body. He blesses us in a body. He says, I'm going to bless you and give you everything you need as a body. He baptizes us into the body of Christ. So part of actually seeking our needs from the shepherd, whoops, part of this needs of seeking our needs to our shepherd is understanding that as part of a body, he can sometimes meet our needs through one another. So it means when we're going to him and asking him, Jesus, is this a good desire or is this a good want? Is this your will for my life? Do you want me to buy this new mobile phone? He may actually say to you, yes, I want you to buy that mobile phone, but that's not for you. That's for somebody else. Because in 2 Corinthians 8.14 we read, At this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance may also be a supply for your want. Because he knows that you might be helping somebody else today, but he may be stirring them up to help you one day. So he sometimes meets our needs in unexplained, mysterious ways. But we won't know that unless we go to him and say, what do you want me to do with the resources you've given me? How do you want me to use them? Secret two of not wanting. Again, from Psalm 23.1, we need to learn to give as our shepherd gives. This proverb is a really interesting one. We read, He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. Isn't that amazing? We have as one of our needs the need to give because if we give, the Bible says we will never want and he's saying if you give to the poor. So we actually need to give. It's this crazy mixed up upside down thinking that Jesus said was going to be upside down is the opposite to all these worldly ideas. We need to give. You see, it also says... But he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. So we have the poor. We know we have the poor. If we give, we're not going to go wanting. If we shut our eyes and pretend they don't exist or try not to think about other people that are in worse positions because that's a bit of a yucky thought, he says we'll have many curses. And the many curses that often come from never wanting to give to the poor is this desire to say, I don't want to give it to the poor because I want it for me because I'm trying to fill this empty craving for more possessions, more power, more status. Materialism creeps in. It's sitting right there at our door like sin crouches at our door. More power, more stuff. You can't give to the poor. You need it for you. That's the problem with never giving to the poor. Because Proverbs says, if we shut our eyes and pretend they don't exist, we're cursed with this horrible desire to want it for ourselves. It's a really serious warning. Both the New Testament and the Old Testament tell us about the poor always being with us. You know, everything in life that we see, that we experience, 
It's all part of God's detailed plan. It's not like something happens by accident. It's not like God's forgotten the poor. It's not like God made a mistake. He says to us, the poor are here on purpose. He says to us in Deuteronomy 15.11, There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your brothers and towards the poor and needy in your land. So way back in the Old Testament, he's saying to us, there's a reason. This is, I'm making choices here on purpose. I have a plan and a purpose for each one of you. And the poor are always going to be with you. So it's not like, oh, we don't have them anymore or there's not so many. He's saying they'll always be with you. And even in the New Testament, Mark 14, 7, the poor you will always have with you and you can help them any time you want. So we are always going to have the poor with us because we need to give to them so that we don't want for ourselves. And the way that the shepherd gives, the way that he models to give, is to give himself. He's asking us to do the same thing. He says... Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So he's saying what he's looking for us to do is to give ourselves, give our time, give our care. He's saying just opening up your checkbook is not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for you to give you. Sometimes he might be asking us to give his money, our money, but he's saying, I'm modelling for you what I want you to do. I'm giving myself, I want you to give yourself more than anything else. And the thing that often is most precious to us is our time. We want time to watch movies. We want time for pleasure. We want time to make money. We want time to do the gardening. We want time to spend time with friends. Sometimes it's our time he's asking us to give. Because in this busy, busy world... Time has become a very valuable resource, one that we hold on to very closely. How many times do we say, I don't have time for that? Jesus says, it's actually my time. I've given it to you. He says, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for you to give yourselves. He says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So if the right way is to give eagerly, the wrong way is to give sparingly. I mean, God wouldn't even spare his own son. That's how he models it for us. He said, I'll even give you my own son. I'll give you my spirit. I'll give you everything you need for life and godliness. He's a generous God. I think sometimes we think God is a taker, like he wants to take from us. But, you know, God is a giver. God is modelling this beautiful giving heart that he's looking for us to imitate. And the ones that imitated him really well were the Macedonians. The Macedonians are the ones who really show us this beautiful heart to give. 2 Corinthians 8.5 says, And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So Paul is actually speaking to the Corinthians. So they're a fairly wealthy church, and he's talking to them about the Macedonian church. So in today's terms, this would be Paul talking to us in Australia and saying, Look at these people in Ethiopia and the way that they're generously giving themselves. 
They have much less than you, but I want you to see this beautiful spirit of giving themselves. That's what God's impressed with. Not the amount that they give, not the dollar figure that they give, but this beautiful heart of giving themselves. He's interested in our attitude of giving. He wants us to follow the Macedonians model for, as they model for us. 2 Corinthians 8, 1-2 says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. It's their grace. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And he gives us that same grace. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, 7, But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. It's like Martin Luther King said. It's like we're converting our hearts, we're converting our minds. We're saying, I really want to be faithful, God. Please increase my faith. I want to trust you more. And he said, yes, this is great that you excel in that, in faith. We want our speech to be words of encouragement. We want to be speaking truth. We don't want to be speaking lies. In knowledge, we want to know the truth. We don't want to be knowing lies and deception. That's all really important. He says, Make sure you excel in grace of giving too. That's equally important. Just like faith, just like speech, just like knowledge, just like your earnestness in the way that we love one another. Equally important is excelling in this grace of giving. He's looking for an attitude of grace in the way we give. So if we're not giving in grace, then what are we giving? What's the motivation? What are we under if we're not under grace? Let's have a look at the opposite. Because the opposite is under law. See, under law, our attitude sounds like this in our head. It says, I give in order to be accepted by God. Yeah, I reckon if I do this and I do that and I give this time and I give that money and I do that, God's going to really be impressed with me in terms of loving me even more. He's going to just think I'm the ant's pants because I'm doing so much in terms of giving. But that's not what God's asking us to do. He's asking us to give under grace. That sounds quite different. That sounds more like this. This is, I give because I've been accepted by God. It's the reason I give, not to get acceptance, like lots of other religions are saying They say, to get God's approval, you've got to do all of this stuff to get accepted. But our God doesn't say that. Our God is a God of grace. He showed us grace. He gave to us in grace so that we too can give in grace. He's the reason why we give in grace. Because he's already accepted us. Not to get it, but because of it. What else would it sound like under law? My giving is a duty I resent. I suppose I have to do this for the church and all. But really we're resenting it. That's not under grace. Under grace, giving is... My giving is a privilege which I enjoy. And one more example. Under law it sounds like this. I give the least I can to keep God and others off my back. 
yeah, well, 10%, let me just figure that all out. 10% of my time, 10% of my energy, 10%, oh, geez, well, I hope God stops talking to me about this and bugging me about this. You see, that's motivated by law. He says, I don't want you to be motivated by law when you give. See, under grace, I give as much as I can to express my gratitude to God for his love. There's this beautiful thankfulness that God has done. And while we can never repay him for all that he does for us, it's this beautiful way of expressing thanks to God. Because ultimately, we're actually giving for him as our shepherd. Listen to this, what Albert Schweitzer said. He was a way back, probably about 100 years ago or more maybe, he was a great medical missionary. He said this, The interior joy we feel when we have done a good deed, when we feel we have been needed somewhere and have lent a helping hand, is the nourishment the soul requires. Without those times when one feels part of the spiritual world by his or her action, the soul decays. So this isn't to get acceptance from God. This is this idea that God creates us to give. We have a need to give. People feel like there's no meaning in their life when it's all about them, when they don't give. Psalm 23 in verse 3 says, He restores my soul. So how does he do that? I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. And we're going to read a passage from Matthew 25, starting from verse 23. Sorry, from verse 33. So Matthew 25, verse 33. We read, He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So if the Lord is our shepherd... We'll be his sheep. We'll be on his right. We don't want to be one of the goats on the left. So what does it mean to be his sheep? Let's continue from verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So we're not doing it because others are our shepherd who we're looking to please. We're not doing it to have this nice feeling for ourselves, to please ourselves. No, we're doing it for him. So it means if we're doing it for him, it doesn't matter what the response we get from the other people. So if you do something nice for them and they spit in your face, 
It doesn't matter. You're doing it for Jesus. If you do something nice for somebody and they criticize you, it wasn't good enough, it doesn't matter. You're doing it for Jesus. If you give somebody something and they're not using it the way you thought they're meant to use it or what you thought they should be doing with it, it doesn't matter. You're not doing it for them or yourself. You're doing it for Jesus. So we don't have to be worried about people's reaction, whether they like it or not, whether they agree or disagree with the way that we're loving them and giving to them because ultimately we're doing it for Jesus. So when we give, we don't have to worry about what they do with what we give them. I've got a really quick clip for you to look at. It's only about 30 seconds and it demonstrates this point of give it up. When you give something, you'll have an idea in your head, an expectation perhaps about why you're giving it and what you expect the person to do when you give it to them. So in this skit, a daughter is, um, in this clip, a daughter is visiting her father. She's actually asking her dad about a present that she gave him and just wondering how he's going with that. Now, it's in German. So when you hear them speaking German... I know it's in German, it doesn't matter. You'll get the picture and you'll get the message very clearly just by watching what they're doing, especially if you watch what the dad's doing. It's cute, isn't it? But it makes the point, doesn't it? Does it really matter that he's using it as a chopping board, really? I mean, is she doing it to get some accolades and saying, wow, I can't believe how much I love this iPad, you've just got it all sorted, you're so clever, you're so amazing? Or is she doing this beautiful giving because she's doing it for Jesus? I've got no clue. I think it was an ad for iPad, so I'm assuming that she's doing the ad for money. I'm not assuming she gave it for Jesus, but who knows? But the core thing is... When we give, we're not giving to get something back. We're giving because we're doing it for Jesus, regardless of the reaction we get, regardless if Jesus is prompting us to tell someone the truth about where they're heading in life and they don't like hearing that maybe hell is where they're heading. But we're giving them the truth because we're doing it for him. We're living the truth in our lives, even if people don't like the choices we're making. We're doing it for him because he's our shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd and we shall not want if we keep following our shepherd's voice. So secret number three of not wanting. We need to seek discernment from our shepherd in terms of how much. It says in 2 Corinthians 8.12, For if the willingness is there, The gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. So it's not what others think that you should give. It's not what you think might be a minimum amount to give. 
God is asking you to give what he's given you already. So maybe he'll ask you to stretch. Maybe he's saying, I want you to give more than what you feel like you have. But he's not going to ask you to give anything more than what he's able to empower you to give. You know, he says, I've given you everything for life and godliness. He says, I can, he says to us, you know, you can do all things. You can do absolutely all things through Christ who strengthens you. So before we say no to the request, when he asks us to give, we can go back to the shepherd and say, Lord, how much, when, where, how do you want me to say this? How do you want me to do this? Because I have a willing heart. I just want to follow you as my shepherd. This seems a bit odd, this thing you've asked me to do. But it's not odd if this is from you, Lord. Confirm that for me. Show me, Lord. Help me not give for the wrong motives. Help me to excel in giving in grace. You see, if the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. We'll be in this place of contentment and security We'll be in a place where we know that our Lord is giving us everything we need. We don't have to be scared. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to worry. We don't have to get angry when things don't work out the way we wanted. We have a beautiful shepherd standing there speaking to us. And if the Lord is our shepherd, we will not want So the three secrets of not wanting. Seek the needs from our shepherd. Let's not go to others. Let's not look to ourselves. Let's go to him for our needs. Ask him what are our needs. We get confused between what our needs are and what our wants are. What do we really need, Lord? Can you help me? Secret number two, let's give as Jesus gives. He gives in grace. He gives himself. And secret number three, let's seek discernment from our shepherd. How much, Lord, and when, Lord, and what, Lord? What do you want me to give? So in a Christian worldview of economics, that is of resources and wants, we can say a Christian worldview of economics is simple. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I like this picture. I like this picture because it demonstrates the idea that while the world asks, what does man own? And the world may look at a pink balloon and say, "Ah, not very impressive, a bit boring, who cares, it's worth 20 cents. Jesus says, ah, but what can you do with that balloon? And I look at this picture and I think, what a beautiful thing. If that's the only thing he owns is a pink balloon, how precious is that gift? It doesn't need to be a million bucks. It doesn't need to take him 10 hours. It doesn't need to be the most intellectual thing he's ever said or done. Jesus is just interested in this beautiful gift of grace, of giving what he's already given us. He doesn't care about what it is, but what we do with it, how we're giving it, what the attitude is behind the giving. It's not that there's no value in things. 
There's value in how we use the things that Jesus gives us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are just so thankful that you are so eager to be our shepherd. Lord Jesus, help us to choose you as our shepherd every day. Every day, Lord Jesus, there are opportunities to choose you, to listen to your voice. And Lord, as your sheep, we want to respond to your voice. We want to choose your way. We don't want to follow other shepherds, false shepherds that are in other people, false shepherds that are even in ourselves. Lord. Help us to understand that your voice, your voice is the only voice we want to follow. We don't want to follow any other voice, Lord Jesus, because your voice is the voice of truth. Help us to discern your voice. Help us to talk to you and respond to your voice with obedience, Lord. Help us to know that we can face anything with you as our shepherd. Lord Jesus, we choose you as our shepherd. You are our shepherd, Lord Jesus. You are our shepherd and we shall not want. In your holy, holy name, amen.